Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Resonance Test, an EPAM Continuum podcast. I'm your host, Macy Donaway. Almost no one saw the coronavirus coming, but over these last months, we've all seen a surge in needs driven by this pandemic. The pandemic pushed some companies to crank out massive numbers of ventilators and masks and others to pivot to brew up new-to-them products, such as the distilleries that pumped out hand sanitizer to make up for the lack of supply. In the midst of all of this, were individuals and groups of subject matter experts cooking up their own solutions or opening up the solutions for others to adapt or use. This is what we want to talk about today, pandemic innovation, crowdsourcing, and open sourcing. We invited in two people who know this topic well to speak with Ken Gordon, our Principal Communications Specialist. The first, Dr. Freddie T. Wynn, the Arnold O. Beckman Postdoctoral Fellow at MIT, Co-Director of the MIT COVID-19 Challenge, and a pathology resident at Mount Sinai Hospital, has brought together different stakeholders from healthcare, academia, private industry, and the government to crowdsource and build solutions with the goal of accelerating the implementation of these ideas as quickly as possible. He's joined by EPAM Continuum's Duncan Freak, a mechanical engineer who is one of the brains behind EPAM's Gentle Mask, an open source design that utilizes readily available materials and incredibly simple manufacturing processes to enable localized manufacturing. These two bring together their experience for a conversation that not only covers how crowdsource and open source solutions come together, but how they've adapted due to the pandemic and our suddenly remote condition. Tune in and then think about how your ideas might benefit the greater population in our next big crisis. I want to begin by talking about what happened during the course of our recent pandemic. There were numerous organizations and numerous people who were scrambling to find ways to innovate. Um, Some of their solutions turned to the crowd, others to open sourcing. And before we begin really getting to stuff, I'd like to see if we can define those two terms, the idea of crowdsourcing and open sourcing. And uh, uh, would you start us off, Freddie, by talking about crowdsourcing and and how you define that? So I think crowdsourcing, um, as we've come to more readily see in this time of is really that the concept that ideas can come from anywhere, uh, can come from uh, individuals who are within that uh, subject matter expertise or outside, but really coming from uh, any corner uh, of the ecosystem of the world uh, towards a particular problem, uh, as opposed to, uh, and sometimes refer to this as you know, crowdsourcing, as grassroots innovation, um, and I think that's where most likely we think about crowdsourcing. Good, good. And open source, how would you define that, Duncan? Yeah, I would define open source um, as a group of people getting together, often from um, a typical or expected discipline, to develop a solution, uh, perhaps with a by a process that they might normally use. So we think of this oftentimes in software, um, where people will develop a software solution, and then they'll actually make that solution available in a, in a documented way to the community at large to use or adapt as they see fit. 
Cool. Now, I would like to ask both of you guys, which do you think has been more effective in these sort of COVID-19 innovations, uh, crowdsourcing or, or open sourcing? So I would say at least in our in the current efforts that I've been involved with through MIT is we've actually taken an approach to try and incorporate both. Um, where, you know, tra- our hackathons that we've traditionally used at MIT um, that we've now virtualized has really taken this approach of crowdsourcing and bringing together all the different stakeholders within uh, that's been affected by the pandemic, whether that's within healthcare, within academia, within private industry, within governmental agencies, um, and bring them all together to crowdsource and build those solutions. Um, but unlike our prior hackathons event, we've also taken the stance of any solutions that get developed at our hackathons to be under an open source uh, license and mentality um, to better and more quickly accelerate uh, the implementation of these ideas after the, ha- the, the hackathon event itself. Um, and I think, you know, both, um, I would say both crowdsource uh, sourcing of the solutions and open sourcing of the solutions have um, its merits and I, I really do, I think, complement each other in that perspective. And so I think during the pandemic, it was much more judicious to bring those two together. In my opinion. Cool. Duncan, yeah. how about you? Yeah, so I, I think that that both both crowdsourcing and open sourcing have, have their place, and they're very different approaches depending on the problem that you want to solve. So I think um, when we're talking about certain types of problems, so if we talk about specifically ventilators, Ventilators are highly complex. Their operation is non-obvious, and what they're doing is non-obvious. And the the level of um, safety and some of the requirements, um, you know, aren't necessarily clear when you're looking at one. And so that's a place where, if we're making um, new ventilators, I would want that to be an open source thing. And so we we saw some companies that actually manufacture those ventilators, putting those plans up. And so for people who wanted to make a a ventilator or companies that were going to go into regulated manufacture or something like that, that's a really great place to start. You want to start with the most information. Um, For certain certain other things, I think, you know, going for a crowdsource approach makes sense. Either way, I think you need to make sure that you're really accountable to the people who are going to use whatever it is you're developing. And you're getting that really diverse set of perspectives that's going to sort of inform and make sure that that's true. Um, I think, I think where I see some of the challenges of, of crowdsourcing is um, really evaluating ideas Mm -hmm. and making sure you have the, the right um, experts to be able to do that. So when we talk about certain medical, certain, certain medical devices, um, you know, there are people who have more, knowledge in a particular area in terms of what will be safe and effective um, than others. And and I think, you know, one of the challenges I saw with some of the, the crowdsourcing happening generally um, around some of the solutions, uh, specifically around PPE in this, in this present situation, is that um, they were really presented um, on equal footing lots of different ideas were presented on equal footing and they might be very different in terms of how much, um, how much testing had happened to them, for example, or how much, um, you know, documentation there was. And that's where I think, um, you know, it's really important to get a wide set of ideas, but also think about um, when we're actually putting ideas out there, like what are the requirements for um, an idea to meet, to actually um, get into the world? 
Yeah, yeah, I would counterpoint that I think crowdsourcing doesn't can meet some of those requirements, right? It's it's about making sure that you can outlay the problems within the appropriate constraints and restrictions of the design process itself. Um, but that's a, and I do agree that it needs some level of expertise as well. But uh, doesn't necessarily necessitate that you know it all be, for example, engineers that are focused who have built ventilators their whole life to be the ones that develop a low cost, uh, more efficient version of the ventilator, so to speak. Um, and that we do need to open ourselves up to have some of that external innovation come into a new field or a new area as well to think outside the box and to bring in some new concepts uh, and design principles too. Right. The idea of having some diversity there is is useful if we're coming up with something new, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I couldn't agree more. I think the uh, the people who develop a, you know, a ventilator that costs twenty, forty thousand dollars are probably not <laughs> the best people to go to, to to make that ventilator cost four hundred dollars. Um, you know, they're they're too close to the problem and they haven't necessarily um you know been able to make that that pivot cool now one thing we've learned for sure from this pandemic is that we can't expect this to be the last one and we really do need to try to be prepared for our next awful emergency so so duncan with the with the idea of good enough not too late or gentle from the gentle mask has i think really stuck and and surely will be around for the next large-scale health emergency, whatever that is. Any thoughts on how we can get to good enough more quickly next time? What what we've really learned to, to sort of speed up and improve the process maybe for next time? Yeah, I think I think thinking about how we build our teams and who we um, who we approach to solve problems and how we sort of build a, a structure to actually uh, to, to undertake that innovation or development is, is really important, really important to make sure that we're getting the right feedback, really important to make sure that um, we've got a, a diverse set of people that are, that are inputting um, ideas, you know, to, to get a solution. And I think, you know, one of the things that we really need to see and understand is, is how we can really gather some of those requirements really quickly so we can understand, you know, what, um, what something has to meet. I think, um, you know, a lot of people were working on a lot of things um, early on in the in the COVID nineteen pandemic, um, and it really wasn't clear um, where a lot of those things mapped to standards. And I think um, a lot of a lot of the standards weren't really clear to a lot of the people working on that stuff. They weren't in language that people were used to reading. They weren't presented in a way that made sense. And so I think thinking about how to present that information will be a key part of it. Hmm. You know, Freddie, I, I would like to know, how did you get involved in the Gentle Mass Project? What was your introduction um, to this thing we did? Um, so I think the first time I had heard about the Gentle Mass was from um, Jeanette uh, Continuum, who um, reached out and uh, was telling me about the project. And how they were in need for more, uh, both user feedback, but also some more input on how to um, get more, you know, essentially, word about uh, the gentle mask, how to get traction, and uh, once you could get some advocates behind it um, mm-hmm. as well. And I think to sort of add on to Duncan's points, in terms of preparing for the next 
pandemic, it's really thinking about bringing all those stakeholders together from the very beginning, right? That coordination between, you know, who who knows what the standards are for uh, building these masks, who knows the engineering behind creating these masks, who knows, you know, who's going to be the actual end users of this, who's going to be the ultimate uh, buyer and manufacturer or distributor of this, right? So it's, you know, I think that's how we'll become much more prepared in the future is if we start breaking down those barriers and those silos, mm-hmm. opening up the communications, making things more accessible um, is going to be one key uh, component moving forward. And that connectivity and that uh, transparent communication, um, I think it's going to be really key as well. Yeah, networks seems to come up a lot in our conversations in this area. And I was wondering, are there any lessons to share about making the most of our sort of personal and organizational networking? I mean, I know you're 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 a highly networked professional, Freddie, and I, I think a lot of the people who are really effective in making this happen were able to very quickly mobilize their networks. Is there anything you could share to people who might want to um, be part of uh, the next thing that you've learned? I mean, I think the biggest thing is to have that open-mindedness, right? Um, is to, you um, know, the value of a network is really investing in good people who have the right spirit and the right motivations. Um, because at the end of the day, we never know when we're actually going to activate what part, different parts of our network at what point in time mm-hmm. either. Um, and I think, you know, given not just my own network, but also the network we had through MIT and through MIT Medicine as part of uh, the COVID-19 challenge that we launched. Um, it, without those pre-existing relationships uh, in place, both at the organizational level, institutional level, and personal and professional levels, um, there's absolutely no way that these efforts and initiatives could have come together so quickly in a timely manner because a lot of them jump you know, head first in without even thinking twice about it because they trusted the relationship and they trusted the other person on the other side uh, of the relationship. Mm -hmm. Cool. Now, now Duncan, uh, you've said that the reality of the gentle mask is that it will be as good as the person who makes it. And I'm curious uh, to hear from your perspective, how you found uh, the good people to do this and, and maybe how might we, do better next time around to ensure that the partnerships we forge are, are sustained. Have you given much thought about um, how you found the right partners and how you'll find the next partners next time around? Yeah, I think it's an interesting question because the the type of partner you need for any particular challenge will be different. Um, and and so you know, thinking about you know some of the things you were saying, Freddie, I, I think. I think it's important to sort of have have your network and 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 understand and leverage the relationships that you've built, and that's really where we started. Um, you know, was with a lot of the the people that we've worked with, vendors, medical professionals that that we have existing um, relationships with, um, and I think I think you know in this situation, a lot of people were. Um, prepared and and ready to help, and people wanted to figure out um, what what the thing they could do uh, to help in this situation. I think you know as we as we think about these these networks and and how to kind of build them and and grow them. Um, it's it's really a question of how we sort of 
how we sustain them, how we sort of capture the the energy um, and really, you know, excitement that actually went into a lot of this development for a lot of people. People really sprang into action and, and you know, the situation itself was serious. Yeah. And, and actually think, despite that, um, you know, people in, in a lot of cases had a lot of had a lot of fun doing this development because they were able to work with people that they really enjoyed working with. They were able to take on challenges that were really meaningful and they were able to see the impact of what they were doing. And so I think, you know, when, when we think about how we sort of sustain these networks and when we think about who we want to get involved, it's really, you know, the, the people that, that want to show up for a task like that. And I think, you know, we, we start to, you know, when we think about the the people we work with, when we think about the the people we come across, um, you know, there, there's all sorts of things you're looking looking um, looking at in in people. For you know, you want someone that can deliver this type of thing in this amount of time. And I think we're we're starting to notice that there are other things we really care about, and and other things we want to understand, and and the sort of the the drive. Um, to do things like this is another thing that that's probably added to our list in terms of the, the people we want to be thoughtful about building relationships with. Do you find yourself in communication with those folks on a regular basis, Duncan? Do you sort of make an effort to make sure you're still speaking to with them even right now? Oh yeah. Yeah. I think, um, and, and certainly not in every case, but I think, I think it's, it is an important thing to stay connected. I think, um, you know, a lot of a lot of those um, relationships, a lot of those those sort of collaborations were, were formed really quickly, and so I think you know it's important to uh, sort of do a little bit of post game there and understand how how those collaborations went and how we can move them in the future. Um, and I think um, it is it is one of those things where you you do want to stay in touch and you do want to kind of understand just how. Um, how the situations and realities are, are changing for everyone in those different situations. Cool. Now, uh, Freddie, as the co-director of the MIT COVID-19 Challenge, uh, you have a lot of experience with sort of harnessing the, uh, the famous wisdom of the crowd. Can you talk to us a little bit about long distance hacking and how does how do things change when you're doing things um, remotely? Um, how does human-centered design change when seen through like the the lens of a Zoom camera? I I would love to get your perspective on uh, how you do this stuff from a distance. I mean, I think you know, COVID nineteen has forced all different parts of our lives to go long distance and remote yeah. and virtual. Um, sure. Everything from our professional lives to the education of uh, you know students to um, you know even the provision of or the healthcare delivery that we do through the hospital systems and so on. So um, in a sense, you know, of course, we didn't really have a choice but to try and virtualize what uh, we normally do with our hackathons. But this was an experiment for us too. It was the first time that we did virtual hackathons after many years as part of MIT and MIT Hacking Medicine of doing mm-hmm. live, you know, in-person hackathons. Um, and it was, uh, we, we all had our trepidations uh, going into it because uh, we had, you know, although the wisdom of uh, doing things virtually and remotely meant that we could potentially reach a much wider uh, audience and mm-hmm. uh, as participants, as mentors, crowdsourcing that expertise from really all over the globe. Um, 
But on the flip side, um, you know, some of the issues that we were thinking about were, you know, how when you no longer have a social context um, of what happens in a live event, for example, if we think about the mm-hmm. team formation process, like when we can't really gauge um, the other person on the other side and how, you know, through their body language or their tone or um how they're expressing their ideas, how does that come across on the other side of, as you mentioned, of uh, uh, a Zoom video or a camera lens, so to speak, um, would kind of unfold. Uh, remarkably, uh, and it's kind of surprises that that process has uh, worked just as well, uh, if not even better, because uh, anecdotally, the, what we've heard from participants is that uh, yes, we couldn't have some of that in-person sort of cues that you could, you know, social cues that you could pick up, um, but also the virtualness and the remoteness of it also allowed people that maybe would have been natural introverts uh, to be much more open to that process mm. and be able to engage a lot more freely with others. Um, and if we really think about it as a purpose of the hackathons and also why we, at least at our hackathons, we don't have prescribed teams usually come into our hackathons. We do all of the team formation at the hackathon itself mm-hmm. uh, is to break down all of those barriers, all of those uh, social connections, or those preconceived connections and uh, behaviors uh, ahead of time and really let the ideas speak for themselves. And so this was, in a sense, one more way uh, that we sort of let those preconceived biases and uh, notions about people and others uh, fall by the wayside and really let the conversation about the best ideas um, move the needle forward and, and drive the, the bus, so to speak. Um, so just, you know, kind of fast forward through the event selling, trying to see now that we've, you know, in a matter of two and a half months have launched um, five and about to do our six um, hackathon or datathon events so far, um, each, you know, each one of our large scale, larger scale events have garnered, you know, easily over 1500 participants, 300 plus mentors that literally cover the globe you know each one of these events has representation and participation from over 100 different countries nearly every state across the u.s and it's been phenomenal to see that um and what's been more phenomenal is that um even if you think about this you kind of say well okay that's great on an event level but how does that really transcend all the way down to the team level um and i can't tell you the number of times every time i see the final team presentations literally it's a multinational uh team that's been put together for each one of these you very 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 rarely see that oh it's all the team of people in the u.s who are you know working together to solve this problem um and so it really brought a new face to um you know that that crowdsourcing and that wisdom of the crowd so to speak uh, on a different level because now not only do you have different uh, perspectives and expertise and backgrounds um, from all over the world but because of the way the pandemic itself has evolved around the world um, other parts of the world has had more experience with it have had different experience with it Um, but in terms of going back to what you were saying about how do you think about the user design thinking process? Um, it 
really hit home how much not just the problems itself are, but taking into context the local ecosystem, the who the end user is going to be. Because even if we have the same problem here in the United States versus um, you know in Latin America or in Africa, where infrastructure mm-hmm. is completely different, um, where the local ecosystem and health systems are completely different. If you actually go back and look at our uh, broader challenges and problems, you at, at first glance all look very similar. Whether it was targeted at the U.S. or Africa or Latin America, but once you dig down deeper into it, you'll see that a lot, you know, of those other components besides the problem itself are equally important to solving that problem. Knowing who's going to now be the buyer or the end user in Africa versus the United States, uh, or taking into account that you know it's. There are social barriers, there are cultural barriers, there are infrastructure barriers, there's energy differences in terms of electricity access or internet access as well. So, um, and those have to be too, taken into account, you know, going back to some of our earlier conversations about the importance of having all of the stakeholders at the table from the very beginning of those conversations as you problem solve. Uh, even before your problems, I mean, even uh, the basic definition of where and what the problem is, um, and, and then problem solve uh, as a group around around that problem. So uh, it's been remarkable to to say the least uh, to see that process happen on such a scale. I'm really I'm really interested to hear about these international teams and sort of the results of these international groups working together. Have you noticed any difference in the sort of output of their design work by having people from all over the globe work together? Yeah, and that's actually my most commonly asked question to all of our judges, especially a lot of them who have been part of our in-person live hackathons and who've now served as well as our virtual hackathons. Yeah. And every single one of them has said the ideas have been just as good or better. Um, and it really you know, speaks to, again, the, the value proposition from not just only having that diverse set of perspective and essentially trying to grab the best of everywhere and trying to combine that into the ultimate solution, but you then, you know, the, the dynamics within the team is you actually get, you know, very frank, constructive criticism from your other team members, uh, as opposed to being siloed in sort of your own mindset and thinking, right? Um, kind of going to Duncan's earlier point too, that, you know, having the engineers who build the $40,000 ventilator is probably not the right group of people to um, only have focus to develop the $400 version of that ventilator, right? So, um, but uh, yeah, so it's, it's, been um, I think an amazing experience and I think we already see the outputs of that in the sense that you know looking at even just the basic metric of our teams continuing um, after the hackathon and right now we the percentage of teams that continue has actually been higher with our virtual hackathons than in our live hackathon so far and it's only been a couple of months since the first one that we've launched so that's very promising to see that that's an amazing uh a result there. It's really cool. And it makes me think of something, another amazing idea of Duncan's. And Duncan, you have this idea of the design core, which you've mentioned to me before. Uh, this idea that we, this thing called you call conceived as the design core, something to help deal with future innovation emergencies. 
Can, can you explain your vision for what this is? Because I, I think it, it might be useful for us to think about right now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, as, as it happens, I'm, I'm an identical twin uh, and I have, a, I have a twin brother, Jacob, who is also a mechanical engineer. And, you know, after some time uh, where, where both of us were kind of engaged in, in some of the emergency technical response work related to the, the current COVID-19 pandemic, um, we really s- started to come to this idea that um, in some of these really rapid response scenarios where there's a very clearly defined problem, there's a very clearly defined need, um, it would be really great to have uh, some clearly defined team with clearly defined resources. So when we think about um, emergency response, right, if a, if a building is on fire, you know, you want the people to show up who have trained for that fire, who have the equipment to put out that fire, um, mm. and who have a process to do that. And when we think about um, some of the sort of emergency development that happened related to the COVID pandemic, a lot of really great work happened. But I think there were a lot of challenges because, um, you know, we sort of we sort of got um, all of the people that were were really interested in the problem, um, which which is great. But you know, you also want the people who are going to be able to sort of solve a lot of the different technical aspects. And, and there's a sense in which, um, you know, if, if you're responding to things like this, you really want, um, you know, a, a team of people from a diverse background with a diverse set of skills um, that is really trained and practiced to respond to something like this. And so I, I really imagine, and, and, and Jacob and I have, have talked about the, the idea that, it would be really powerful to have a group of people um, that actually um, have have some structure, have some 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 thinking around everything from from prototyping to understanding regulatory standards to you know people um, you know from a you know could be every country in the world um, that can actually come together and have a defined process to to jump on problems as soon as they come up. Um, and and a structure to sort of create roles and outputs for doing this work really quickly, because I think when you're doing this work really quickly, understanding and and ensuring quality can be a challenge, and that's where you know I would really like to see us you know respond to these things in a really disciplined way with the resources that are appropriate for response. So if we're going to call up the National Guard for you know. Um, you know, uh, a hurricane response, you know, we should have a group of technical professionals that we call up um, when when there's a PPE shortage. Awesome. Now, the, the last thing I want to talk about with you guys is leadership. I, I actually consider both of you guys to be uh, leading through this COVID-19 uh, innovation response. And I'd like to ask you two to talk about some of the leadership you saw manifest um, during COVID-19 pandemic. Can you talk about someone you saw or something you saw that really um, impressed you and sort of think about how we might build on that example the next time? I think on my, you know, experience that I've had over the last few months, um, yeah, I'm trying to think the way I can do the word leadership kind of strikes me as odd in a sense that it's about identifying a single individual that's, you know, coalesced the forces behind him or her uh, towards a particular initiative. But 
I think what I was most impressed in what I saw was there was a common call to action through what COVID, what happened with COVID nineteen, um, and I would say you know you could call it essentially collective leadership, but it, it was amazing to see kind of this collective approach that of an all hands on deck that. Uh, no matter what your leadership role would have been or has been at different places, we all put those hats aside and you know galvanize whatever we could, whatever you know, low and high in terms of resources, networks, uh, capabilities towards solving this problem. Um, and so, I think that's what I've I've been most impressed in, in seeing uh, that side of individuals really again. Kind of speaking truth to a lot of what we've done at our hackathon, which is, again, thinking very truthfully about what is the problem and being very problem-centric and user-centric and leaving sort of everything else by the wayside and letting that and the, the ideas that come to address that to really uh, focus the solution. Um, you know, and really, again, lending that open environment for people to participate, uh, thinking outside the box that, you know, we're not you know, quote unquote, the definitive leader in anything. We're all learning as part of this process too, but, you know, having that humility and humbleness to encourage and bring all of those stakeholders together as part of solving that problem, those problems. Oh, I love that. I love that. Um, Duncan, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, that was, that was a really, really very eloquent. I, I think, I mean, what I saw um is that you know in in this time when when we're really asking people to step up step up um everyone is capable of leadership and we should we should ex- expect everyone to be capable and and ready to take leadership in in different ways um there's so many things that need to happen in a situation like this and i think you know we we have a traditional view of leadership as being one person being totally in charge and guiding, you know, everything that's happening. And really that's, that's a very limited view of, of what that looks like. And I think, you know, what we saw with successful efforts here is a lot of people taking on leadership roles in different ways and figuring out how to work really well together um, with, with a common goal. And so I think it really, Mm. you know, shows a, a nice picture of what leadership can look like because it's not, it's not sort of one person all or nothing. It's a lot of people figuring out how to step up, listen to each other, and and take on something together. It's great. You guys are both humble, communal, open-minded leaders. And I, I, I thank you for what you've done. And, and we all really appreciate the great work you've put forward. And I appreciate you taking the time to talk about it. So thanks a lot. Thanks. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Thanks so much for bringing us together. EPAM Continuum integrates business, design, and technology consulting focused on accelerating breakthrough ideas into meaningful impact. At EPAM Continuum, we're very deliberate about the term innovation. For us, it means turning ideas into stuff that's real. Because from our perspective, ideas aren't really innovative until they exist. A big thank you to Dr. Wynn and Duncan for sharing their expertise and ideas for supporting emergency innovation as we move forward. And more importantly, we want to say thanks for stepping up as leaders and innovators during this time of need. 
We're truly appreciative. Cheers to Kip Palalis, our sound engineer extraordinaire for getting this podcast recorded. And numerous appreciations to Ken Gordon, our producer, for all his masterminding behind the scenes. I'm your host, Macy Donaway. Thank you for listening today. Thank you.